Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where I would invite you to turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, page 808 and 9 in the church Bible, so that would be some help to you. And if you're new and you're wondering why we're in this particular portion of the scriptures, because a few months ago we began working through 1 Corinthians. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and here we are a few months later in chapter 5. And in just a second or two, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. And while you're turning there, just a couple of things. Um, let me take a moment to thank two of our elders, Bob Lynch and Pat Mathias, for teaching you this past Sunday. Um, I was on a week's holiday. It was a very nice week. It felt like three. So um, I want to thank them. It's right to give thanks where thanks is due. And so I want to thank them. And I also want to thank all of you who support West Cohasset because um, your generosity, your giving makes for my living and it enables me and my family to take those weeks off. And so I want to tell you how grateful I am for those things. I sincerely appreciate that. So, and I do my best not to try to take advantage of it. So, here we are. Verse 6, chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an adulterer or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Amen. Let's pray together. And as always, if you have a question or, or anything about what we've said or read or uh, sung this morning, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you when we have completed our time together. Well, Father, please grant to us the pleasure of meeting with you around your word, the Bible, and later around your table as we commune with you. Thank you, God, for these necessary privileges. Teach us not to overlook them but rather to engage ourselves wholly into them. Please come now in power and glory, all minds, all hearts, all eyes on you. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Now, the root of the issue in the church in Corinth was pride. And pride, the Bible teaches, makes us blind to our own sin big with our mouths, and to be honest, small with our brains. Because pride can make a church blind to the main and plain truths of God's Word. And one of the byproducts of pride, as we are learning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is the issue of immorality in the church. Immorality in general, but also immorality in a specific situation, which we learned of last time. Verse 1b, if your Bible's open, you can see it there. A man has his father's wife. So the situation was open, unashamed, defiant, 
unrepented sin. The shock is this open, unashamed, defiant, unrepented sin in God's church was so horrible that it was even below pagan standards. So not only was this below a biblical ethic, ethic, you can read this in Leviticus 18, but it was even below their own cultural ethics. And the scandal here is not so much the sin, but the Corinthians' reaction to this open, unashamed, defiant, unrepentant sin. That's verse 2. And you are proud of it. And you're not grieving in light of it. In other words, it's not that the church was unaware of the sin. It's not that the church was simply tolerating the sin. It is that the church was proud of the sin. In fact, verse 6 tells us they are boasting. Maybe it goes something like this. Yes, we are so loving here that you can be intimately part of the group, call yourself a brother or sister, and still do what you like. The next thing you know, the man will be made a bishop. Why do I say that? Because someone might say, well, this seems so far off and so strange, strange to our society. Well, that's exactly what happened just a few years ago. In 2007, the Episcopal Church of America did what? Well, they applauded and boasted in the fact that their newly appointed bishop, this is the head of the Episcopal Church in America, had left his wife and children, and he was in a public relationship with someone else. In this case, it was another man. And I remember watching the presser on TV, and the applause was great, and he was called great, and the whole thing was thought of as great, all before the eyes of God. But Paul would say, verse 2, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put your, out of your fellowship the man who did this? So, loved ones, the real issue in chapter 5 is not so much a particular act of immorality, but how the church responds, and here's the key, to open, defiant, unrepented immorality. That's the issue. Because as long as you and I are part of the church, there's always going to be sin in the church. It's disappointing. It's heartbreaking. I hope we understand this. So if someone is here and you're loading up your weapons to be the moral majority in the church, you probably ought to back off just a bit. The circumstance here is open, brazen, defiant, unrepented immorality in someone in the church who calls themselves in Christ. But they're choosing to do what they like, they're mean with it, and the church is boasting about it. That's the situation here. And Paul would say on the authority of Christ, no, no, listen carefully. Membership has meaning. Belonging does bring boundaries. That is the authentic New Testament church. And this means that our church doors are always open to everyone. They better be. We are inclusive here. We draw from any and all backgrounds. We love it when the skeptic comes in. We love it when the outsider comes in. Please, God, keep them coming in. But ultimately, ultimately, in the communal aspect of the church, anything goes and nobody cares has never been the call of the authentic Christian church. And loved ones, listen very carefully. Immorality in chapter 5 goes far beyond just sexual issues. Verse 11, you can see that there, will teach us that. Because in some respects, that's just kind of too easy. And I say that because we know, I think we know, that there is, um, in our current evangelical church a preoccupation almost obsession with sex it's not helpful and it's not true to the new testament pattern of dealing with immorality 
You see, the situation in Corinth had gotten to the place of last resort. It's open, it's defiant, it's public, they're boasting about it. Jesus taught in Matthew 18, if it's all possible, personal and private is the starting place for dealing with unrepented sin. But in Corinth, they had gone way past that. And here's the deal. The whole reason for this discipline is not, listen carefully, it is not to take a a defiant public stance about the whole issue. But it is to save a precious soul. That's verse 5. Do you see it there? Hand this man over to Satan. Why? Well, put him back in the world. Why? So that his sinful nature may be destroyed. And his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And that's why this chapter is so important. Because Paul is more loving in his discipline. And is showing more concern than the Corinthian church who would simply applaud this man on the road to hell. So in light of all that, we just have two points this morning. If you received a worship folder, you can turn to the back there and you can uh, go along with us. The first is the picture that Paul provides. Now remember, verse 6 is still in line with the same uh, thinking that Paul is giving the church beginning in chapter 5. And what Paul does here is he gives an Old Testament picture to give a New Testament truth, but better still, a New Testament certainty. And the picture Paul provides is that of the Old Covenant feast of Passover. And this is how it went. Once a year, the Jews recalled the way that God had delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. And one part of that celebration, as you can read this in Exodus 12 later on, which was to take place then before the Passover lamb was slain, was a serious and solemn search. This might seem kind of weird to us, but this is what they did. They had a whole search in their whole house for any yeast. So part of the custom that they had developed over time was to take a candle and search the entire house, every corner, every place, to see if there was any least, any leaven anywhere. And if it was in that house, they were to remove it. Now, God had told his people that part of the Passover feast was to not eat leavened bread. So they could eat unleavened bread. In fact, God was so serious about this that he said in Exodus 12, verse 15, that if you decide to go your own way and eat leavened bread, you'll be cut off from Israel. You can't be part of the group. Now listen very carefully. We're not told why God said this. But the picture here can certainly help us all because it's pointing forward to something. This is an Old Testament picture to give us a New Testament reality. In the whole of the New Testament, except for one place, Matthew 13, yeast or leaven was always a picture of sin, a picture of some, something evil affecting everything it touches. So those of you who bake bread will know this. And by the way, I baked bread twice over my vacation. So I kind of understand this. You put a little yeast in the bread and it dramatically affects the, the loaf that you're making. That's how yeast works. And that's part of the picture Paul gives in verse 6p. Don't you know that a little yeast, sin, inside the church, works through the whole batch of dough? In common tongue, don't you know that one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch? Don't you know that one little sin can ruin everything like it did in the Garden of Eden? And what Paul was saying is one persistent, open, unashamed, defiant, unrepented sinner who calls himself a brother or sister, who remains accepted and isn't confronted, as in the case here in the church in Corinth, it can taint the whole body. Now think with me. That's how sickness spreads. And it only takes 
a little bit. It can be clergy. It can be laity. And with the proper incubation, presto, the thing is everywhere. Yeast, once activated, cannot help but to spread. Evil, once accepted, and that's the key, once accepted, cannot help but to spread. And that is the nature of evil. My evil affects you. Your evil affects me. And we compromise with evil on occasion, but God never does. And whenever a church then tolerates open, defiant, unrepented sin, then it has a devastating effect upon the whole of the church. Now listen carefully. We're not talking about those of us like me who struggle with sin. And sometimes win the battle and sometimes lose the battle. That is not this. And we're not talking about someone new to the body and still trying to figure this all out. However, we are taking a stand on open, defiant, unrepented sin in the church. So Paul says, what are we to do with that kind of sin? What are we, kind of do, what are we to do with that kind of brazenness with someone who calls themselves family? The answer is right there in verse 7a. Do you see it there? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. And so what Paul is saying is simply this. Be what you are. Be what you are. This is how you get rid of it because you know something really did happen to us when we surrendered our lives to Jesus. Something really did happen when we cried out to him in childlike faith and repentance. So Christian, you've already been made new as a result of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Christian, you're not missing anything. Christ did not only give you a little bit of himself when you repented and believed. So we can then, and we must, on a regular basis, get rid of the old yeast that would just ruin everything. And whether it's church discipline, as here in uh, chapter 5, or it's personal discipline, get rid of the old yeast. God has redeemed us. God's put a new principle in us. God loves us too much and the cross too powerful that we can all right now, listen carefully, all of us right now with no special help, no special classes, uh, no special diets and dates as in Colossians, no special group meetings, whatever, whatever it is, we can be what we are. And Paul is saying if a church tolerates sins, And listen carefully, because I think this is probably more to do with us. If a church tolerates sins or kind of makes up its own list, whether it be informal or formal, of what sin is and is it not, then that church becomes a charade. It's a fake church. And what you will have is an insecure church and a false church. Because personal assurance and disobedience, they can't go hand in hand. They can't. Personal assurance and disobedience like this cannot go hand in hand. And loved ones, listen carefully again. If you are unclear between the difference of personal conviction that you hold to and actual sin, and if you're trying to take that personal conviction and lay it on the church, then you have the potential to be a bloody nuisance to the rest of us here. And you'll need to think that out. Now here's the strength behind Paul saying, be what you really are. It's given at the end of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And what Paul's saying in a really clever way is our strength to get the yeast out is the gospel. It's the only strength and our only hope to get rid of the old yeast. yeast. Now think with me because this is so fantastic. 
In the Old Testament, when the people of God were delivered from their bondage to Egypt, it was all God's doing. I mean, if you think about it at the very end, all they had was a little bit of a party. You know, take some blood from a sheep or goat, put it on your door frame, pack up, and you leave. And that's pretty much what they did. And when they left, all because of God, they were no longer slaves to Egypt. When they left... They were no longer living in bondage under that tyrannical rule. They were new people. Does this sound familiar? They were, in fact, new creations, a kind of new kingdom. That's what God had done for them. And they were constantly being called back to be what they were. So when they would have their little sin-filled moments, when they were trying to, to go back to their future and they said things like, hey, let's get rid of Moses. He's no good. Hey, you know what? Let's make up our own God. Let's just make a little calf here and let's go back to Egypt because it was so great there. When they would have those sin-filled moments, God had to come and if you would, remove the yeast. And if you know your Old Testament at all, oftentimes God's disciplines were not very pretty, but they were very necessary and they were very loving. Why? Because God was teaching them, hey, Be what you are. Now take that Old Testament picture and apply it to the New Testament promise that Paul gives us here. Christ, our Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain so that our sins can not only be atoned for, but be done away with. A new righteousness given, firm assurance granted, new powers given, uh, the explosive power of a new affection. That was uh, Thomas Cramner's famous sermon. In other words, that is the strength of verse 7 and verse 8. Okay, there's sin there. What are we going to do? You ready? Be who you are. Be what you are. It's the gospel. Now, there was a missionary to the Indians in the turn of the 18th century, David Brainerd, and he spent his very short adult life uh, serving the American Indian, And listen to what he says in light of verses 7 and 8, because it's so awesome. I never got away from preaching Jesus and him crucified, Passover lamb. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instruction about morality. I found that one followed a sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I found them to begin to put on the garment of holiness And their common life, again, the American Indian, began to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and Him crucified. And loved ones, as you think about that, that is so beautiful. That's what Paul is doing here. Take them Christ. Take them to the Lamb who was slain over and over again. Over and over again. Now last week in in our family devotion, we were working through Romans chapter 7. And that's that great chapter where Paul the Apostle goes public with the fact that he does evil. And there's a war raging in Paul inside of him to the extent that at the end of the chapter, verse 24, he says, what a wretched man that I am. Why does he say that? Because he's losing much of the battle. So you have a 50-year-old something man writing from all places, Corinth, get that, he's writing to the church in Rome from Corinth, and he's saying, you know what, I'm not that good. In fact, I'm pretty bad. I'm a wretched man who can save me. Listen carefully. He doesn't say, what do I need to do? He says, who? Big difference. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And so what Paul does is he does not cry out a list of principles. 
He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to change, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and it's going to be great. He doesn't cry out principles. He cries out a person. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Passover lamb. And Paul says, that will do. That will do. It's the same thing here. Hey, you boasting Corinthian church, hiding from the world. You let an unrepentant, deviant sin seep in. Okay, here's your remedy. Be what you are. Because Jesus is the final Passover lamb. Get rid of the yeast of sin. You can, you know. Well, how can you? Because Jesus is the final Passover lamb. And so this muddle-headed church, as muddle-headed as it was, as it was I should say, how evil they were, boasting about incest. Can you believe that? Boasting about it. They had no right on a human level to be called the church of Christ, to be called unleavened. That's what Paul calls them there, except for one reason. Better still, one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. John Stott on this writes this, that Paul should call this church unleavened, holy, is amazing. And that is the kernel of Paul's theology. Look at what Christ has done for you. Now get on with becoming what he has made possible. Now that is so liberating. It's so liberating. I go to church now then to worship God. Not, not to become holy, but because I am holy. I've served God and his people and his world with vigor, not for notches in my belt or pressed for my ego or not a bigger standing with God or with man. But, but, but because I am being what Christ has made it possible for me to be. So I give, I pray, I weep, I repent, I defend, I confront, I love, I forgive, I lay my life aside and I do it all over again week by week because I'm being what Christ made me to be. What his death and his resurrection has provided for me. Hey, hey Joe, did you have to go to a, a secret place to learn that? No. Did you have to get some special ops training to get that? No. Why not? There's only one reason. Christ, our Passover lamb. Because in one sense, it is always Easter for the people of God. That is the victory Christ has won for us. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. That's why we, if you would, that's why we're hallelujah people. So that's why verse 8 says what it says. Go to the party then and party. Go to the feast. Keep the festival. Enjoy your Christian privileges and do your Christian duties. Now, if you're thinking about that, you're probably thinking of the prodigal son, right? Come to your senses, son, and come on home, son, anytime you like, son, and live as my son, son, because you are my son, son. And loved ones, that is church. That is church any time. Come on home. And surely then we know that Paul's not calling for complete perfection. He's not calling for that. He's just calling for honesty. Again, look at verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the party. Okay, keep the festival. Okay, how? Because parties can be dangerous. Can't they? They can be very dangerous. Give me a couple of Dr. Peppers, and I'm not the same man. Parties, ah, now you're listening. Good. Parties can be dangerous. So how do we keep the party? Well, we keep it, verse 8, not with the old yeast of malice and wickedness, 
And that speaks of an evil, evil disposition of mind, always wanting to cause pain, always wanting to do evil, always want to cover up and ruin the party. So don't keep the party that way. Keep it with no yeast at all, with the bread of sincerity and truth. What does that mean? Well, the word sincerity is a great word. It's used five times in the whole of the New Testament, four times with application here in verse 8. The word means living underneath the light of the sun. In other words, live your life in the body of Christ, in his church, in such a way that you're not living in the darkness always. You're not trying to cover up your wickedness of heart or your spite or your meanness. But rather, there's an openness to you. There is a crystal clearness to you. You are dealing with sin so that the light will shine. You see, it's okay here. We're not perfect. We're dealing with sin. It's part of our deal. I mean, we should tell each other in a thousand different ways. I understand you're a sinner. It's okay because I'm one too. That's sincerity. That's truth. In our front yard, we have two, two lamp posts. And we like to keep the lights on all night for a number of reasons. But mainly to help the families who, who walk all the time on our street to feel safe at night. So there's a bright light and they can see things as they really are. And that light is lit in a way that it helps then the community. So in the same exact way, Paul is saying there must be a clear dimension in the church, sincerity and truth that shines out to all. So in our speech, I'm just going to give you some scripture references. You might want to write these down. So in our speech, 2 Corinthians 2.17. In our thinking, 2 Peter 3.1. In our behavior, 2 Corinthians 1.13. And in our character, Philippians 1.10. There is an openness so that the light of Christ may shine. The psalmist says it like this. See how long it's been since this has been our prayer. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart, God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Me. Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this church, fill my life with your light. Charles Hodge, from the same generation as David Brannard. The world is waiting for a church that takes sin seriously, but which also enjoys forgiveness fully. A church who doesn't expect perfection who doesn't expect sinlessness because they know that will be our reality only in heaven, but a church who lives in victory over the forces that destroys others, a church that is open and honest and wanting God to shine his light, to expose our darkness so that we confess our darkness and know his forgiveness. That's the beauty of repentance. That's why we should start off our day and end our night in repentance. Shine, Jesus. Shine. And we can't be afraid of that. We can't be afraid to let the light shine. I am sometimes. I get it. But we can't be afraid. And Paul would say when that takes place, then and only then will the church get the look that she should get. Pretend church is dangerous, it's weird, and it's unattractive. That's our first point. 
the picture Paul provides. Secondly now, and quickly, the principle Paul gives, that begins in verse 9. And so if you see verse 9, apparently Paul had written a previous letter to the church, and we don't have a copy of that, not yet. And somehow in it, they got a hold of the wrong end of the stick. He was trying to tell them, our discipline is not for the world, but for the church. So he wants to clear things up. Look at verses 9 and 10. I wrote to you that in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, and swindlers, or adulterers. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. And that's certainly true, isn't it? How in the world can you do business? How, how can you do your work? How can you live your life? How can you go to classes? How can you evangelize without associating with immoral people? It's, it's impossible. You can't do it. And what Paul is saying here is just what Jesus said in his own day. Because remember the Pharisees of Jesus' day? They were a very small group, outwardly very religious, outwardly very conservative, and they had this unusual skill to condemn everyone else in their sin while tolerating in themselves the very same sins that they condemned. In other words, they condemned sin on the outside but happily tolerated their own sins on the inside. They had this kind of pretend standard that Jesus would constantly confront them with. So look at what Paul says. If you had to isolate yourself, verse 9, from immoral people, you'd have to leave this world. And that's not our call. But what I am saying, verse 10, but, I, uh, but, yeah, but I'm now writing to you that you must not associate with anyone Verse 11, excuse me, not association with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an adulterer or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. With such people do not even eat. Now, loved ones, we can't miss what is happening here because it has a very, very contemporary ring to it. The Corinthian church had grown pharisaical and that it condemned sin on the outside, the church, in the world, but at the same time tolerated sin inside the church. And so it tried to isolate itself from the difficulties on the outside while at the same time tolerating the issues on the inside. So here's the principle. When a man or a woman who claims to be in Christ is is open, unashamed, defiant, and unrepentant in clear sin, clear sin, not, not opposing our personal convictions, but clear sin, when that is the case, there is to be, as hard as it sounds, There is to be no association inside the church. And yet, as weird as this might sound to you, there has to be association with immoral people outside the church. No to association inside the church. Yes to association outside the church. Firm discipline within the church. Complete freedom of association outside the church. I don't know why, but I keep thinking about the first time someone from our old congregation in Tennessee saw me at a newsstand, and I was reading um, uh, Rolling Stone magazine. And they had a a holy heart attack because I was reading Rolling, Rolling Stone magazine. What was that all about? We have to associate with the world. We have to. But here's another principle, as you see it there. Sin outside the church is not nearly as dangerous as sin inside the church. Do you understand that? Isolation from the world that's described here does not bring sanctification. That's a con game. Guys and girls make all kinds of money teaching Christians these things. That was the Pharisees. And they were tanking on the responsibility to engage in the world, not with judgments, but with a message and with Christian conduct. Now, as you think about that, 
by and large, what does the church spend its time doing? Exactly what Paul says not to do. Always looking for something in society to wag our finger at. That's verse 12. But that is none of our business. That is God's charge. You know, we may get a holy buzz and say, I thank God that I'm not like that person on cable TV. But that won't do. We have the camera shooting the wrong way. Paul never had monasticism in mind when he wrote this lever, lever. He never had pietism or isolationism when he wrote this letter. Paul would look at us if we were cra- as we were crazy if we thought that our victory over indwelling sin was because we isolated ourselves from television shows and from movies and from other sinners and we tried to make sure that every place we went to was, quote, Christian. He would laugh at that. That wasn't Jesus either. Matthew 5, we are salt and light. Uh, We can't keep the salt in the shaker. The salt has to be on the potatoes. We can't keep the light under the box. The light has to shine out. Jesus said in Mark 7 that our impurity comes from inside of us, not outside of us. But the church so quickly forgets this. Running out of time here, but think of this idea of protectionism and economics. Ask yourself, in light of what Paul is saying and what Jesus revealed in his earthly ministry, because remember, what was the brief on Jesus? What was the, what was the skinny on Jesus? Well, he, he loves to eat with sinners. He's their friends, in fact. He's a bit of a party boy because he's a wine-bibber. So where did this idea of isolation and protectionism come in to the church? Where did we get the idea that in order to win the world to Christ... We would have to increasingly remove ourselves and isolate ourselves from the world. Where did that come from? How did we come up with this notion that the way to win the world is to isolate ourselves from all that this world represents? And when we gather then in our little holy huddles, we appoint some spotty-faced person to get to the front of the line and shout at all the bad people in the world. A kind of CNN sermon. I never thought I'd see the day. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Now, does those things, this isolation, does this sound like Christ or Paul? Is isolation the way to expand the kingdom? I thank God that I'm not like other men was the rant of a religious but unjustified before God Pharisee. So there's no notion of isolationism in the chapter. And loved ones, we should pray to God because some of us have so much time on our hands. We should pray to God that God would give us the grace to have open-ended relationships with sinners. Open-ended relationships with sinners. And some of us here haven't done that in years. But Jesus wants you to. And let's be clear here then. It's not only the sexual and moral that we have to worry about. Look at that. Verse 11. Greedy people inside the church. Never enough. Idol or idol worshipers. Fashions their own God for their own needs. Slanderers. Jesus taught that there are many other ways to murder a man or a woman besides Harmful tools. An evil tongue will do that. Drunkard. Swindler. What's a swindler? A cheat. He says he got it for a steal because he did. You should have paid $200 and you only paid 50 And you think you're clever. But you've stolen. So in all this, what Paul is saying, and this is where we'll close. When someone professes faith in Jesus Christ, And they're living visibly, willfully, defiantly, persistently in a way that calls them to question their faith. Then what Paul says is you don't even eat with them. 
And Paul also says, no finger wagging at the world. That's verse 12. We'll get into that more next time. No finger wagging at the world. But a difficult kind of discipline inside the church. Don't even eat with them. You mean like a communal love feast? You mean like communion? Yeah. Like communion. Let's bow our heads. God, we would pray that you would grant to us the grace to get these things right. Help us to understand that there are no ordinary events in your church so that we would never take any moment in the life of the church communal lightly. Every time we meet, every occasion we've been granted is weighty. It has an eternal meaning and dimension to it. Help us now, Father, as we go to your table. For Jesus' sake, amen. The men will serve will come forward.